Cleveland, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On November the 9th, 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina was a flourishing North Carolina port town with a racially diverse city government, a thriving black middle class, and an engaged electorate. However, on November the 10th, a white supremacist mob executed a long planned violent overthrow of the fusion government, which resulted in the deaths of hundreds, the destruction and theft of real and personal property, the banishment of the black political business leaders, and the end of robust political participation by African-Americans in North Carolina. This November will mark 125 years since the 1898 Wilmington, North Carolina massacre and coup d'etat. While this event has been the subject of several scholarly articles and books and studied by the North Carolina Commission on which my co-host Irving Joyner served, this history is still not widely known or taught. Moreover, the victims and their families have never been fully compensated for the harm they suffered. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the 1898 Wilmington Massacre, the aftermath, and the need for further restorative justice. Joining us for this discussion is Sandy Ryerson. She is a visiting associate professor at the California Western School of Law and professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She is the co-author, along with Melanie Schwimmer, of the recent article titled, The Wilmington Massacre and Coup of 1898 and the Search for Restorative Justice. Professor Ryerson, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. So let's first start with what prompted you to become interested in this area and to do research and to write about the 1898 Wilmington Massacre? Well, I am a native North Carolinian. I grew up in, in and around Greensboro, North Carolina. I attended UNC Chapel Hill as a history major. Uh, I went on to have an interest in legal history as part of my scholarship generally. And I didn't really know very much at all about what happened in Wilmington in 1898. Um, Even after taking several courses in Southern history, uh, North Carolina history, even at UNC Chapel Hill, Uh, And when the 1998 commission issued its report, I was really stunned um, and learned a lot. Uh, And uh, from that moment, I had a desire. I wasn't sure exactly how to channel it, uh, but I wanted to write something about Wilmington and I wanted to know more about it. 
Uh, and uh, along the way, I also became interested in restorative justice and how restorative justice works and uh, ways it can be implemented in our legal system. And so when I saw an announcement for a symposium at Elon College of Law uh, regarding uh, reparations and restorative justice for addressing uh, inequality in the Black community, I thought, okay, this is a perfect opportunity uh, to write something about Wilmington. Um, and because Elon is also in my hometown, basically, Greensboro, uh, that made it also all the more enticing to try to put something together and write for this symposium. Uh, so that's kind of how I came, came to the topic. Uh, and in general, I've always felt that there are, or at least in my education growing up in North Carolina, there were huge gaps, huge gaps in what I learned and false facts that I learned <laughs> in terms of history. Uh, and I really wanted to be part of making sure that that is undone, you know, so that children growing up in North Carolina and elsewhere don't uh, either uh, learn things that are untrue about their history uh, or just not learn anything at all uh, about these incredibly important events in the history of North Carolina and the South and the nation as a whole. But for the purpose of, of continuing this, this discussion uh, for our audience, can you kind of give us a description or explanation of just what is restorative justice? A restorative justice is a way of uh, approaching past wrongs uh, that is very common in indigenous communities. Uh, indigenous cultures often practice restorative justice, whether they label it restorative justice or not. Uh, but the idea is to focus on repairing broken relationships and restoring people uh, to uh, as close as they can be to uh, their prior situation uh, before some act of injustice was perpetrated on them. Uh, as opposed to punishment, right? Our current criminal justice system focuses on punishment as opposed to restoring the community that has been broken by acts of violence. Um, and I think restorative justice is a particularly useful lens to look at past historical uh, tragedies or historical instances of uh, injustice and violence because the criminal law has largely failed to do anything to address these, these incidences. And that was definitely true with Wilmington. There was no accountability under the criminal law for the things that happened in Wilmington in 1898. Uh, and even our traditional civil justice system uh, has really not succeeded, uh, at least to date, uh, in providing remedy for the victims of events like 1898. Your um, kind of description of your exposure to the 1898 Wilmington massacre is, you know, so many of us have that same um, uh, 
same kind of exposure. Like we didn't learn about it in school. Uh, when we do finally learn about it as adults, we're surprised that that this was, you know, that this happened, especially when, um, like I consider myself, um, you know, a, someone who studies history, like I enjoy history. I love learning about the law. I love learning about, you know, what has happened in the past so it can inform my thinking of the present and what I do in the future. And I as well was not exposed to this or didn't learn of it until um, actually after I had started teaching here at North Carolina Central um, University School of Law, primarily because of the work that Irv was doing in this space and has done in this space for so many years. Do you have a sense, and Irv, I wanna get your thoughts as well. Do you have a sense as to whether um, this history is being taught in a more formalized way? Um, or, or is it still the case where people are learning about it when you know, there's a new book or there's you know, a symposium or there's a, some type of commemoration? Are we doing a better job in North Carolina and also nationally to educate particularly young people about this history? Uh, do you wanna address that first, Professor Joyner? Or no, I, I wanted to hear, hear your, your explanation. Since, okay, okay. Since you, you're, well, you're from the West Coast on this. <laughs> ooh, okay. Uh, well, unfortunately, I feel like uh, some limited progress was being made. Uh, and specifically in North Carolina, um, there were some broadening of curriculum standards to more accurately reflect the actual history of the state. Uh, but not even, even then uh, to specifically require Wilmington in 1898 to be included in school curricula. Uh, but even that limited amount of progress has come under extreme attack, backlash, uh, as part of this national, uh, I'm not even sure what to call it, uh, hysteria about the teaching of critical race theory in public schools. Uh, so unfortunately, I feel like the nation was making some progress in incorporating things like 1898 and the Tulsa massacre uh, into school curricula. And there are some schools that do very effectively incorporate these events into their teaching of American history. But I think as a nation, we are in danger of making serious uh, backsliding uh, in this whole area because we have a bunch of states that have passed laws, you know, see Florida, right, maybe the most well-known example, uh, that make it uh, very uh, treacherous for teachers to even try to teach this history because they worry that they'll get fired, they'll be prosecuted under the law, uh, that some parent will complain. Uh, and it's all very distressing that we're making this, we're not going forward, we're going backwards. And, and I'll just follow up uh, with that by saying that uh, as we track back to uh, 1898, uh, the uh, Democratic uh, Party and its uh, supporters, and the Ku Klux Klan leaders of that day and the media, 
engaged in a robust campaign to suppress knowledge about what uh, had occurred. And of course, it was a lot different back then since you didn't have uh, television and you didn't have uh, uh, social media, you didn't have radio and you know, news did not travel uh, as fast, but the uh, effort was very uh, su uh, successful and that success continues today. Uh, I was just in Wilmington uh, in November for a uh, commemoration of 1898 at uh, University of North Carolina at, uh, at Wilmington. And uh, even there among students who were uh, attending the uh, program, uh, many of them said, well, I, I never knew uh, about this. Uh, and they were in the heart of Wilmington. And then in the community itself, there are still many people who are not aware of uh, what uh, occurred there, even though there, uh, there's all kinds of monuments and uh, other commemorative uh, uh, plaques around uh, to inform people about it, but it's still not taught in the schools. And uh, with, uh, and I think uh, uh, Sandy's uh, point about the uh, critical race theory uh, places everybody on eggshells. Uh, going forward uh, to uh, talk about this because clearly this is an event that uh, that causes people to have uh, a lot of ants about and a lot of concerns about uh, what our government has has done and critical race theory or the attack on critical race theory is designed to ensure that everybody loves America and that everybody loves uh, Wilmington and North Carolina and all of the organs of, uh, of government when the uh, history uh, doesn't necessarily uh, uh, support uh, that kind of uh, accolades uh, for, uh, for our government, particularly from the perspective of uh, racial minorities and oppressed people uh, in, uh, in this society. So it's a slow trot uh, that we're engaged in to uh, uh, inform people. And that's why one of the reasons I'm so happy that we're talking about this again uh, today uh, and tonight uh, so that people will uh, refresh, you know, uh, their recollection of what, uh, what has occurred. Mm -hmm. And for, I'm sure, quite a few of our listeners, they, they may have heard of the 1898 Wilmington massacre and coup d'etat but don't know a lot of the details surrounding it. So let's um, help to, to educate our listeners um, and, and ourselves as well, me in particular. Uh, so um, Professor Ryerson, can you share with us, give us a, a, uh, an idea of what Wilmington looked like um, prior to the coup? And, and, and that helps us to, to understand why it was that so many people were threatened by the existence of Wilmington, the way it was comprised at that time? That's a great question. Um, well, Wilmington prior to the coup uh, was the biggest city in North Carolina. Uh, I think a lot of people are unaware of that. Uh, it was majority black, uh, had a majority black population. Uh, and I think maybe one of the closest analogs that people are more familiar with is Tulsa 20 years later. Uh, Wilmington was known 
uh, as a place where Black people, some of them very recently uh, former slaves, people who were formerly enslaved uh, could obtain work. Uh, there was a lot of industry in Wilmington uh, because it was the number one port city for North Carolina. Uh, there were uh, forest uh, turpentine plants, uh, lots of opportunities for Black success economically and socially at all class levels. Uh, so you had people who were working class who were thriving. There was a thriving Black middle class. Uh, and politically, uh, Wilmington was perhaps even more importantly, sort of unique, especially in the South uh, in the years leading directly up to 1898, uh, because um, a fusionist government had been elected, which united uh, Black members of the Republican Party and uh, poor whites. Uh, in kind of a coalition government that uh, swept state elections uh, in the years preceding uh, the election of 1898. Uh, and I think it was that combination of black economic and political power that so threatened uh, the white population, especially the white democratic leaders of North Carolina. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Sandy, Sandy Ryerson. She is a visiting associate professor at the California Western School of Law. And she is the co-author of a recent article titled, The Wilmington Massacre and Coup of 1898 and the Search for Restorative Justice. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, 
Legal Eagle Review, where we are continuing our discussion about the uh, 1898 Wilmington Massacre and uh, restorative justice. It's a concept that uh, many of you may not uh, be familiar with, and we have uh, a, an expert uh, in that area who has uh, joined uh, with us uh, this evening for our, our discussion. Let me, um, and this again, going, going back to the uh, definitional part, uh, you mentioned uh, the fusion government that, uh, that existed and the fact that it was an interracial uh, uh, party of uh, African-Americans and whites who were uh, in the area. Uh, working to uh, promote the uh, politics of the uh, of Wilmington at the uh, time, what what makes for a fusionist government, and how does that differ from uh, what it is that we know today as a uh, political party or as the political party that uh, we have roaming around pretending to be just that? Uh, well, the fusionists were a populist coalition. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't think it would uh, be accurate to say that it was uh, a party devoid of racism or anything like that. I think it was um, a party that came together as part of a larger populist movement across the United States. But in North Carolina, the thing that made the fusionists unique was uh, that it was, even though there were there were still elements of racism in the party, it was interracial. Um, so it was one of those very few instances uh, in North Carolina in particular where bonds of class overcame racial identity. Um, and the campaign, the white supremacist campaign that led up to 1898 was specifically designed to break that bond, that, that unification across class lines that uh, is what was at the heart of the fusionist party. Uh, and they succeeded, uh, very much so. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and let's talk about how they were able to do that because you know when we think about what we want out of our government and who we want to you know be our representatives economics plays a big role and so if you know the government can assist and and support in helping folks um, become economically independent we think that that might be the primary um, factor in deciding who to vote for but then as you noted racial identity was being used to kind of cause a wedge between these groups that were working together. So how, how were they able to accomplish that so successfully? Well, it was a very deliberate effort and a deliberate campaign. Uh, the chair of the state Democratic Party at the time was Fernifold Simmons. Uh, and his platform for this campaign was that he wanted men who could write, men who could speak, and men who could ride. So the, the writing part uh, largely came from the, the biggest uh, media outlet of the time, the Raleigh News and Observer. 
uh, and uh, Josephus Daniels was the editor-in-chief of the Raleigh News and Observer. And the, the media, that newspaper, was used to systematically push stories that were designed to inspire both hatred and fear of the Black population in the, the months leading up to the election of 1898. Uh, so that print campaign was central to uh, achieving the goal. Uh, and they ran racist cartoons uh, for people who were illiterate so that they could get the message as well. Uh, so the print campaign was a big part, uh, was basically propaganda that was pushed on uh, the white community. Uh, the men who could speak uh, led giant rallies, uh, gave speeches. Um, probably the lead speaker uh, was Charles Acock, who was a, a central figure in North Carolina politics, uh, went on to become the governor after 1898, uh, but he gave lots of speeches designed to rile people up and uh, crusaded against what uh, the movement, the white supremacist movement termed the Negro domination of Wilmington. Um, and uh, Alfred Waddell, uh, who became the mayor of Wilmington after the coup, uh, was also uh, a big speaker. He was basically a washed up uh, former Confederate uh, <laughs> who called himself a colonel, but didn't uh, rise, you know, was not definitely not a colonel, but he <laughs> achieved a lot of success in giving inflammatory racist speeches uh, during this period. And then the men who could ride were largely the red shirts. So they were like the domestic terrorism arm of the party. Uh, and so what they couldn't accomplish through propaganda and persuasion, they accomplished through violence and intimidation. Now, the, 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 this, this campaign uh, to overthrow or the uh, local government in Wilmington was a part of a larger statewide effort. Can you kind of describe just how this larger statewide effort then was designed to center on Wilmington? And why was Wilmington so important to the statewide campaign? Well, I mean, again, it's you have to remember that at the time, Wilmington was the biggest city in North Carolina. Uh, I mean, I think we think of it now as kind of, uh, you know, there's a university there and it's near the beach, uh, but it's not thought of as the most important city in North Carolina, but at the time it was. Uh, and also in terms of Black success, it was the center. Uh, it was... Uh, the most shining example of how Blacks were succeeding both economically and socially and politically in a post-Reconstruction world. Uh, and so I think that was one reason why Wilmington in particular had to be targeted in this campaign. Um, the, the statewide campaign, as Professor Joyner just pointed out, was definitely bigger than Wilmington. Uh, they wanted to oust the fusionists from office statewide, and they did. Uh, North Carolina elected a fusionist governor 
in the previous statewide election. And so, of course, they wanted to get rid of him and all the other statewide offices that were not being occupied by white Democrats. Um, so uh, it was necessary. They, they had statewide ambitions, but I think Wilmington was the focal point because, again, at the time, Wilmington was the most important city in North Carolina, and it was sort of unique in terms of Black success. And I think one of the fascinating things about studying this um, this event is you realize that as far as political strategy, nothing is new. And, and there's so many parallels between what happened at that time that we see happening today. And one of the um, goals of this massacre and this coup d'etat was to try and suppress the black vote, not, you know, like going forward. Can you talk about um, that aspect of this campaign and, and how it led to um, Jim Crow, it led to suppression of the vote for decades to come? Uh, that, that was probably the prime focus of the campaign. I mean, I think all of the propaganda, which talked about all kinds of social issues was really just designed to make sure that the fusionists were ousted and that the white Democrats uh, were solidly in power and stayed in power. Um, so in terms of the election of 1898 itself, there was blatant voter fraud. Um, the red shirts made sure that black people could not vote uh, and or could not register to vote or vote. Uh, the ones who did manage to cast ballots, uh, those ballots were often uh, burned or replaced with white democratic ballots. So there was blatant ballot stuffing. Um, the uh, members of the red shirts uh, were told to go to the polls. And this is in one of Waddell's speeches. He told them to go to the polls and if they saw black people voting to stop them and if they couldn't stop them from voting to shoot them. So there was blatant intimidation. It was clearly not a fair election, uh, but it worked. Uh, all of the fusionists were swept out of office. Uh, and the people who were elected made sure to enact laws uh, that prevented any reoccurrence of Black political power or Black political participation statewide. Uh, that's what they did with the political power they got through these violent means of intimidation. Now, you, you, you talked about... Uh... Josephus Daniels and the uh, News and Observer, uh, the uh, media champion uh, in North Carolina at uh, that time. Uh, could you kind of discuss the importance of the media in that campaign uh, and the absence of a counter voice uh, from the African-American community, particularly in light of uh, the uh, African-American press uh, that uh, existed uh, at the time. And, and, and how uh, did that uh, racist message then prevail all over the state? 
That's a that's a great point. Uh, thank you for bringing that up, Professor Joyner. Um, one of the impressive things about Wilmington before 1898 is that it did have a very vibrant Black press, uh, mainly in the form of uh, a publication called The Daily Record, which was run by Alexander Manley. Um, and uh, that Black voice uh, was the first thing that was suppressed in the violence of 1898. Uh, like I said, what happened in 1898 was a coordinated campaign mainly designed to oust a particular group from political power and to make sure that white supremacists controlled the government of North Carolina. But the sort of excuse for the rioting uh, and the violence was an editorial that was published in the record months before and reprinted in the News and Observer right before the election um, that talked about, uh, was an editorial basically responding to a racist editorial that preceded it, uh, calling for black men to be murdered to prevent them from associating with white women. And so Manley's editorial basically said the real problem is white men raping black women and he suggested that some relationships between black men and white women were consensual so this was kind of the the flame that uh you know kind of lit the powder keg there's that's how it was attempted to be portrayed right they deliberately published that editorial right before the election and the first thing they did after the election, uh, and again, all of this violence happened after they had already won the election, um, was they went to the Daily Record and they burned it down. Uh, and they almost certainly would have killed Alexander Manley if he hadn't managed to leave the city before that happened. Uh, there was uh, an all-Black firefighter unit at the time that was physically pro prevented from putting out the fire, um, so it was destroyed. Uh, and it was really never restored, right? At the time of 1898, the Daily Record was the only daily Black publication in the United States. It was highly regarded. It provided a, a vibrant counter message to uh, the propaganda coming from the Raleigh News and Observer. Uh, and again, all of this was deliberate. Um, the, the editorial that was used as the focal point was really just one example of the paper speaking up for black rights. Uh, and that voice was completely snuffed out by the events of 1898. Yeah, and we should um, add to go back to your point about breaking the bonds that were, that kind of brought groups together based, based on economics and infusing identity uh, politics into the mix that whenever you want to you know, rile up white men, all you have to do is talk about black men and, and white women. And so that was, you know, as you noted, I mean, this was deliberate and this was intentional um, in terms of how you get uh, folks who may align economically in terms of their goals to be divided and have whites turn on, on you know, white men turn on black men to infuse 
um, you know, sexual, um, you know, interactions into the mix. Um, when we think about, and, and I know we're gonna have to take a break um, in a few minutes, but when we think about the consequences of, of all of this, and of course there are, are wide reaching consequences. And when I think about the suppression of the history there are many reasons, right, for that. Um, one is, especially if we're thinking about Wilmington and we're thinking about the economics of Wilmington, if you don't understand what happened in 1898, you may assume that those that are in control kind of economically are there because of their own, you know, blood, sweat and tears, right? Um, and not that, that the economic stability that exists for some people was actually stolen from others that may have had it. And so of course we have those economic consequences um, which gets to the restorative justice issue. But also I wanna just kind of emphasize the black press. And now, you know, in terms of being able to build a community that is informed and engaged and politically involved um, that, you know, removing that voice um, and that, um, structure within the community just further erodes it. And so the consequences are so far reaching. And if you don't study the history or know the history, the assumption is that the current circumstances in which we find ourselves is just because, you know, this is the nature of, of this community, which is not the case. Anytime you had a thriving Black economically powerful, politically powerful community during that time, um, and after, you see concerted efforts to destroy it. And Wilmington is just one of many examples. Um, we're going to have to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to uh, hear Dr. Uh, Professor Ryerson give her thoughts on the restorative justice aspect of this. So what can we do to make the victims um, and their families and their descendants whole? You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU, and um, we've been talking about the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. Um, we are going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back, and we hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. We're back, and uh, thank you for staying uh, with us as we continue 
this uh, discussion about the 1898 Wilmington uh, massacre and, uh, and coup and the search for restorative uh, justice. We've been uh, discussing what happened in Wilmington in uh, November uh, 1898, specifically uh, on November 10th, 1898. And, uh, and we wonder now that we're into the beginning of another African-American history month uh, here in 2023, uh, what restorations can occur and why is restoration important and necessary in this situation? And uh, uh, so our expert is gonna talk <laughs> to us about uh, that. She defined for us what restorative justice uh, is all about. How does restorative justice apply in this context uh, for an event that is uh, 125 years old at this point? Yeah, so the aim of restorative justice uh, is to repair and rebuild affected communities. Um, the, the process of seeking justice for people who are long dead, uh, not, I mean, there, there are some direct descendants, but unlike Tulsa, for example, where I think we have three remaining survivors of the Tulsa massacre still, still alive today, uh, Wilmington is about 20 years predating that. Uh, so you're not going to find anybody who was present at the events of 1898 alive in 2023. But that doesn't mean that the community doesn't need to be restored and rebuilt. Uh, and I think that restorative justice is one of the few tools that we have to address these long ago, uh, but still reverberating uh, mass instances of violence that tore apart uh, the Black community. Um, so the, the steps of restorative justice, uh, if you look at the progression of what's happened in North Carolina since the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, uh, the steps of restorative justice always start with uh, truth-telling, right? recognizing what happened and acknowledging the pain and the destruction that was caused, not candy coating it, not whitewashing it, not lying about it. Uh, and it took almost a hundred years to get to that first step. Uh, I would say the, the first real progress in mm -hmm. eliminating or overriding the false narrative that was put on events in Wilmington was the commission that Professor Joyner participated in in 1998. Uh, and that report that was published was a very important first step in the process of truth-telling. Uh, so if you don't have that, you, you really can't achieve anything from a restorative justice perspective. You first have to acknowledge truthfully what happened. So uh, I don't want to minimize that. That was took an immense amount of effort uh, to produce that comprehensive report, to publish it, 
uh, and to try to bring that truth to the broader community in North Carolina. So that's the first step. Uh, the second step, most people would say, uh, would be uh, a societal apology, right? Uh, an apology in and of itself does not restore a community, but acknowledging what you did as a, as a society, and, this, and it's important to remember that 1898 was not the work of a random mob. It was orchestrated by the government. It was perpetrated in large part by the government, and it was covered up by the government. So the government has an obligation to acknowledge its part uh, and to apologize for that, uh, and then to make amends, right? Um, and I think the, uh, I mean, the apology that was issued by the North Carolina State Legislature as part of the aftermath of the report issued by the 1988 commission was kind of a half apology. I don't, I don't think it really uh, acknowledged the role of government in the events of 1898. Um, but in any event, the crucial part is the res restoration, right? The, the, the repair that needs to be done. And I think those crucial recommendations from the 1998 report are the ones that have kind of been mothballed by the North Carolina state government. Um, and they haven't devoted any significant amount of resources to achieving the things that the 1998 commission recommended. As, as to the, the, the people, uh... 125 years later, what can be done by the government and by the various uh, organs uh, locally and uh, uh, statewide to uh, address uh, this, uh, this issue? Well, with restorative justice, there's uh, sort of a dual approach. Uh, some people in restorative justice circles say that it's supposed to be kind of 70-30, like 70% community-wide restoration with the rest being directed at individuals. Uh, I do think an important part of achieving restorative justice for Wilmington is directly compensating some of the descendants of individuals who were directly impacted. Um, I know that direct descendants of the victims of the Wilmington massacre have been identified. Uh, I mean, not all of them are known, but some of them are known. Uh, and obviously there's no amount of money that anyone could give them to bring their lives to the place that they would have been if their family hadn't been destroyed in 1898. But some amount of compensation is an important part of the acknowledgement of the harm that was done. So those individual reparations, uh, which were paid out, for example, uh, there's one example of a racial massacre in the United States that uh, was actually followed through and paid individual reparations, and that was Ocoee, Florida. Um, the United States has paid individual reparations to victims and descendants of Japanese internment. 
during World War II. And there are many more international examples of individual people being paid reparation. Um, and it is an important step, an important part of the, the process. So I think that should be done. And there are people who are calling for that in Wilmington. It just hasn't happened. Um, so that would be one, one form of uh, step that should be taken. Um, and then, you know, other things that can be done by the government uh, are, again, what things that were recommended by Professor Joyner and the other members of the 1998 commission back in 1998, uh, investing money in the economic development of the area that was decimated by uh, the events of 1898, um, providing funding for housing and uh, enabling the black residents of the city to retain their homes in the face of gentrification and other forces. Um, so there's the economic aspect to it and there's still the political aspect of it. I mean, remarkably enough, Black political participation is still under attack in North Carolina through gerrymandering and uh, attempts mm -hmm. to enact voter suppression laws. So on a community-wide basis, uh, you know, we, we're still struggling against the impulse to do the exact opposite of what we need to do to restore this community that was destroyed either directly or through indirect means uh, by the North Carolina state government uh, not that long ago. I mean, 1898 sounds like a long time ago, but that is not that long ago when you think about generations, right? It's not very many generations uh, have passed since that event. Uh, and the destruction of familial wealth and the inability to pass uh, that capital and that that success to one's children has altered the course of many, many families uh, who once thrived in North Carolina. Yeah, and I, I don't think that point can be underscored. Not, not only have people um, not been able to create that intergenerational familial wealth, you have those that have benefited from it who should acknowledge and, and that should be part of the conversation as well. And I think when we talk about the destruction of the black community, um, we, we often don't give enough time to talk about those that have benefited as a result. Right. And, and, you know, the disparities that we see. So again, when we think about the racial wealth gap, right, these types of events, and again, Wilmington is an example of many, um, are part of the, the, intergener the, the racial wealth gap that we have today is in part a direct result of situations like this, where you have um, Black economic power being destroyed. Um, so, what are your suggestions for those of us, um, our listening audience, um, who are interested in moving this, you know, moving the needle when it comes to uh, restoration and reparations for the community and those individuals who are direct descendants? What, what can we do 
to get this moving. Because one of the things that we know is as time passes, that becomes the argument, right? That we can't provide any type of reparations because it's been so long ago, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we'll look up, we're coming up on 125 years and at some point it's gonna be 150 years and 200 years. And then the argument will be, well, there are no direct descendants that we can point to, or there are, you know, and of course what we can say about Wilmington is that there are no living um, victims right now. And those are some of the arguments that we see being put forth against providing reparations. So we really do need to get some movement, um, some more movement now, some more progress. So what do you suggest we do? Well, I think continuing to talk about it is an important piece, right? Uh, it's really important not to just issue these reports and then just move on, right? Uh, leave them on the shelf. Um, I think just continuing to raise the issue uh, to uh, advocate for change. I think there are specifically some local groups in Wilmington that have been and are continuing to uh, advocate for reparative justice um, and uh, you know, joining those groups, um, participating not just locally, but in statewide politics, I think is all an important part of it. Uh, and getting back to something that you just mentioned, uh, April, uh, I think it is critical to realize that when we talk about paying reparation to individual descendants, we don't do that for the purpose of punishing uh, the people who are, you know, consider themselves to be the payors as opposed to the payees. It's, it should be thought of as, again, uh, more like a debt than a punishment, right? Like we, we don't say, uh, oh, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not paying for the national debt because I didn't incur it. Well, sorry. Right? I mean, it was incurred on your behalf by people who preceded you. Um, and that is a societal obligation, right? To pay that off, to pay that, make those payments. Uh, and so again, it, it wasn't just a, a random mob who inflicted this damage on the black community in Wilmington. It was an orchestrated effort by the leaders of the North Carolina state government that, it, that made this happen. Uh, and so that is a debt that was incurred by the people of the state and it needs to be paid off. Uh, so, I mean, I think we, we kind of have to own it, you know, uh, and anything that we can do to advocate and and uh, drive home that message uh, has to be helpful. But there are those who say that uh, 125 years ago, we might as well just uh, forget it and move on and live in the future and not uh, keep uh, trolling back to the past. Uh, and to that perspective, what would be your response? Well, I think we've tried that and it has not worked very well, right? Uh, I think the over, you know, the response of the North Carolina state government was to put out a false counter narrative to what happened in Wilmington and otherwise to just sweep it under the rug. Um, but when you do that, uh, you, uh, you know, you undermine the ability of the community 
to ever repair itself and to realize its full potential. And the state of North Carolina has been living with the effects, not just of the counter narrative and uh, the, the whitewashing of what happened in Wilmington, but all of Jim Crow uh, and all of the racial violence that took place in North Carolina. This was not an isolated incident. Uh, all of that has been swept under the rug for years or just lied about. Uh, and so those wounds have never healed, uh, not to a sufficient degree. Um, and they're never going to be repaired unless we take that first step of acknowledging the truth of what happened in this state. Yeah, and I think your point about um, you know, ensuring that our communities thrive, like all of our communities. This is, should be the goal of, of everyone in the state. It's not a zero sum game, right? It's like we can all thrive and benefit. And we want, right? Um, we should want that. And so uh, your point about um, the undermining of the ability of communities to repair themselves and to thrive, is another really good justification for making sure that we uh, move the needle and make sure that we do get um, reparations and uh, for the, the victims of the Wilmington 1898 massacre and coup d'etat. Um, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we'd like to thank our guests for her very insightful thoughts and suggestions, Sandy Ryerson. She is a visiting associate professor at the California Western School of Law and professor at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law. She is also the co-author of a recent article titled The Wilmington Massacre and Coup of 1898 and the Search for Restorative Justice. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. If you missed the show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.